that we haven't been going to see movies because oh we go to see movies we see movies every week uh and what brought us back the ninth film from quentin tarantino once upon a time in hollywood he claims it's his second to last yeah i don't know i i'm not sure i believe it well we'll, we'll find out yeah uh you don't think he's getting better, I'll say that. No, I'm actually glad to see him go, really. <laughs> <laughs> if this is how, I might not even go see his 10th film. You might not go see his 10th film no. based on this? I, I like I this hugely film. hugely disappointed by Emily this did not, um, and we're going to get into the wheres and whys and why fours <laughs> of that over the, over the next uh, 40 minutes or so. So anyways, let's, let's say what this film is. Yeah, please summarize it, Nick. See, I hate that word. You just say summarize and you make me not want to do it. Nick, book report now. No, no. (laughs) So this film is entitled Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It takes place around the Manson family murders in 1969 that happened. Where? In Hollywood. Uh, It takes place. It has to do with a whole bunch of real life people doing real life things and a couple fake people thrown in as our main characters. Those fake people are Rick Dalton played by Leonardo DiCaprio, a former young up-and-coming Western television superstar now falling on hard times as the fashions of the 60s change. Old Hollywood becomes new Hollywood, and he doesn't know if he's got a place in it. He's very insecure about himself. He is. He's like, you know, I mean, if if Clint Eastwood never got out of doing TV, basically. Yeah, like imagine Clint Eastwood without ever doing Million Dollar Baby. Well, without ever doing like the cowboy movies he ended up doing, if he well, had just yeah, been yeah. a television actor, I just mean that. like he, this is a guy who's like may eventually have a comeback, but yeah. he sees himself falling at this moment in time. Yeah, and uh, the other fake main character is a character named Cliff Booth. Booth. It's hard to say. It is hard to say. Played by Brad Pitt, he is Rick Dalton's stunt double, but. Uh, since Rick Dalton doesn't do too many stunts anymore, Cliff does not do too many stunt doublings, and he has <laughs> lately become Rick's sort of personal assistant, gentleman's gentleman, dog's body, what have you. What is a dog's body? It's another term for a gentleman's gentleman, basically. Okay, I've it's never like heard a, that one. Even, well, I'm telling you, I, I did not make it up. Where, where does that one come from in, in like time and location? Where do people use dog's body? I think it's mostly 19th century, but I'm not <laughs> sure. I know I have to look. Well, gotcha. I'll have to look it up. Okay. I don't feel like doing that right now. No, no, that's cool. I'm just wondering so, how outdated that term was. This film has about a, uh, you know, more or less a three-part structure. In the beginning of it, there's sort of an introductory scene where, with, a, I think, a not very good Al Pacino as a uh, a producer wasn't that role sorry to interrupt go wasn't, ahead. didn't you tell me that that role had originally been designated for um burt reynolds no or, i i i thought it might be oh. but burt reynolds was supposed to be in this movie and he died before he could film the scenes oh, but and i'll tell you role? what his role was supposed to be okay maybe yeah. a little bit Let's, later on okay but al pacino oh, is is sort of to. a film producer who's consider who's trying to convince the down on his luck rick dalton to uh go to Italy, go to Rome and make some spaghetti Westerns basically. Yeah. And Rick Dalton thinks he's too good for that. Stuff. I think that's the moment where Rick Dalton's like, Oh my God, am I too good for that still? <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because I always thought that back then television was not as good as movies, no matter what the movies yeah. were. Right. So like the idea was like a film person would be slumming it if they went on TV. So they tried not to do that and they would be more than willing to go to Europe and make mm-hmm. weirdo films than than to be on television to have a television actor who's like too good for spaghetti westerns. I think that's seems more of a, a modern concept. Me. I know exactly, yeah. but 
be that as it may, the, that's how they introduce these characters. Yeah. It's a short little scene, basically. Then after that, you get you get uh, a, a longish bulk of the movie yeah. thing that takes place over one whole February day in Los Angeles in which uh, Rick Dalton films a guest spot on Lancer, a real-life Western television show. But the episode that, that episode is not real. It's not real. There is no Rick Dalton. <laughs> There's no Rick Dalton. That episode doesn't <laughs> exist. Don't try um, to find it on Hulu. At the same time, uh, the other main character, Cliff Booth, picks up a hitchhiker and drops her off at the Span Ranch, which is the cult hideout of the Charles Manson family. <laughs> I mean, they're not really hiding out. They're I mean, giving like horseback they're tours and yeah. stuff. I would say it's just a headquarters. It's just the, the cult it's headquarters just a meet of up. the Charles Manson family. <laughs> Um, it's the hangout. And at the same time, the third main character, who's uh, a real life person, Sharon Tate, played in this film by Margot Robbie. Robbie Robbie. I don't know how you say know. her name. Is she Australian? I think she's Australian. It's probably Robbie. I like Robbie better. If I was going <laughs> to choose for her, I would say Margot Robbie. Let's just go with that. Okay. Um, and she goes. Uh, to downtown Los Angeles, I think maybe. It's yeah, downtown. I think it's probably somewhere like West Hollywood. But and uh, she uh, goes and notices that a film that she's in, a real life film, uh, is, playing, is at playing, playing at a theater. And she, you know, yeah. walks in and watches it and experiences it along with the audience that's watching mm-hmm. it. It is a bad movie, but we'll, we'll get to that later. Uh, so that's the bulk of the movie. Then after that comes the the denouement, the third act. And this, I think, is where the film lost you. Yeah. Is that safe to say? Well, I would say that only the middle segment, the body of the, the real body of the film had me. The yeah. first and the and the last the segment first doesn't did really not matter, though, does it? Oh, yes, it does. You think it matters? Yeah, I don't think still, it was that it still bad. Does. I, I wasn't engaged. Yeah. But anyways, you can go uh, on. So, the, so oh, in the and, third thing. And also, sorry, folks, we're going to spoil it from this moment on, I think, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So if you're interested by this point in seeing it and you haven't seen it, just go see it and then come back and, and listen. And listen to this. Unless you're like Nick and you don't care about spoilers. Yeah, I, I don't think you should. First of all, I you know, supposedly Quentin Tarantino, when he showed this at the Cannes Film Festival earlier in the year, was like, don't tell anybody what happens at the end. You want just like The Matrix. Surprise. Don't tell but anyone that the what thing happens. Is, the thing is, he's repeating himself. Because oh, yeah, if you've totally. seen Inglorious Bastards, you realize Quentin Tarantino has no respect for historical accuracy. No, no, no. In fact, in fact he, he, he loves to gleefully change what yeah, happened he, in he's history. Yeah, like, he's like the judge of history, and he's like, I'm going to enact Since uh, Kill judgment. Bill, we've been joking that Quentin Tarantino's been obsessed with writing history's wrongs. <laughs> and, you know, before this, he's had pretty big targets. Slavery, American slavery, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> going back in time and killing Hitler. Yeah. You know, like these, these, do that. this one, his target is to stop Sharon Tate from being murdered, which I mean, I'm sure is a noble goal, but I don't think would really have changed the course of history as much. I don't care what Joan Didion has to say about the Manson murders being the end of the 1960s. But didn't it, didn't it happen? Literally at the end of the 1960s, like 1969 is the end of the 60s. And there's only like two months left in 1969 yeah. when it happens. So I'm, unless there's <laughs> some kind of weird time warp that would have happened otherwise, <laughs> I, I don't know that the Manson murders were like a thing that, that made time pass into I the I feel 70s. like Murakami should work on that. There should be a 1960s <laughs> with two moons in the sky, you know. Uh, anyways, so, so yeah, so the last segment just basically has this kind of like montage of like, uh, you know, what, what happened with Rick Dalton. And then there's like a, a night, the night that the Manson family comes to kill Sharon Tate. They get sidetracked. They get sidetracked Rick because Dalton. Rick Dalton comes out and yells at him like an old man yeah. with teenagers on his lawn. Yeah. And they realize, hey, maybe we should kill that guy instead. Um, but they are not counting on Brad Pitt. Even like a body. super high Brad Pitt. A super high Brad Pitt, but who has a very well-trained pit bull. Yeah. Um, who just waiting for their home invasion attempt viciously murders these Manson murderers Mm -hmm. in sort of some of the most graphic violence I've seen in a couple I mean outside of like that guy who makes like you know drag across across concrete yeah you know bone tomahawk guy outside of the bone tomahawk movies this is some actually the most graphic violence I've ever seen and uh I think it's what makes this movie 
divisive. Now, I think that there's a certain reading of this. There's two different well, readings. Well, we'll get to that later, okay. though. Right, we'll get to that later. But anyways, essentially what happens is Sharon Tate is saved. You see her at the end of the film come out in her driveway, and she's like, oh, hey, Rick Dalton, my neighbor who I've never talked to before. I'm what so happened? glad you're safe. Yeah. Come up here. Let me give you a big hug with my pregnant yeah. belly. So it's Yay, got this, like... everyone's happy. The end. It's got this sort of... I mean, it reminds me a bit of... What's that movie called? Atonement, right? Where, like... It's all about this lady who did something wrong in her early life. And then she tells you the story about it being sort of righted. And then she's like, oh, I became a writer. And I just told you a lie because they both died without, you know. Oh, yeah. Without being reunited. And so I righted that in my fiction. And this seems like a similar thing, but with real life people where he's like, it's almost poignant to me because he is he is taking like this thing that happened and being like, we're going to tell the story so that it didn't happen. You know, and it's not real, obviously. Sharon Tate is still dead, but you see this like dream of her alive, and it's it's kind of sweet. I think it, I think that that part of it works for you. I know you said it doesn't it work for me at all, at all, not even remotely. I think it's sweet, but I, I would wonder how Roman Polanski feels. But <laughs> Roman Polanski we don't complicates have him here. everything about. We this. don't have him here to ask him. So <laughs> yeah, okay. So Roman Polanski, if you listen to this, just like send us a quick message and tell us how you feel about <laughs> seeing Sharon Tate. I'm saved. sure Roman Polanski <laughs> listens to our podcast from his, you know, hideout from the federal authorities. What else are you going to do when you're hiding out from the law? <laughs> I guess so. All right. Anyways. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think as we said, like, uh, I so, yeah, really did not like this film. Rip it to shreds for us. I just, I, I, I've, I mean, I've been a huge Quentin Tarantino fan for as long as I can think. I've never hated a movie of his as much as I've hated this one. Um, and and I, I guess I don't really hate, hate, hate this one. I just think that it's like a giant waste of time. It is not worth watching. I would not recommend it to anyone. I am sorry that this is what he made as his like penultimate, penultimate film. film because like what a giant waste. Okay, so okay, so I feel like Quentin Tarantino has like a couple things that he does really well usually. One, he usually does violence really well. He, do, he usually does, like, vengeful violence. It's, like, really well, where it's, like, a gratifying thing to watch for you as, as like, like, you know, you're sitting there watching, like... And it's usually, like, to some degree, it is usually pretty violent um, and, and graphic. And uh, this just... I did not enjoy the violence in this at all. I felt really queasy about it. Um, I don't think there's anything different about me. I think it's him. Um, and, and then also like, I think he's a guy who usually does a thing really well with, with dialogue where he has people in a scenario where, um, they often try to change the motivations of the other characters through just talking to them or else they draw out the suspense in the scene and, um, you know, through like talking and talking and talking until like eventually someone gets killed. Um, but, I, you know, like you think about like um, like Hateful Eight is just people in a room together for almost the entire movie. Before that is people in a coach together. Like there's just what do they have to do? Like, sure, there's action, but a lot of what happens and a lot of what you feel in the film is dictated by the actual dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, even like to the degree where, like, say, Sam Jackson's character I mean, how you feel about his character goes through a transformation when he tells that story to Bruce Dern about Bruce Dern's son, supposedly, you know, which, mm -hmm. again, you're like, you you can kind of love the fact that, like, you never know if the characters are telling the truth or not. But, like, your feelings about Sam Jackson as a character, as the audience, really change in that moment, as well as Bruce Dern. And Bruce Dern is actually moved to action by just words you know like yeah it's just words that eventually move brewster into action and get him killed in that scenario so i feel like this movie lacked those two things in particular and then it added in some stuff that i really didn't like which as we were talking about this movie really centers around the career of a guy who's in just terrible western <laughs> tv shows from the late 60s like that i like some old shows but those really are I, they're tedious. They're even tedious to watch in this. And you know what? People are watching these TV shows in this in this movie like constantly, Incessantly. constantly like you 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 enter any new person's abode and the TV is on. Yeah, pretty much always in this. Um, this is a movie that in a lot of ways is about 
television and a specific kind of television from a specific time. Yeah. Now, I don't know if Quentin Tarantino himself like really loves this bad TV, but to me, it was tedious to have to watch as much of it as we had to watch in this movie. I feel like he should have cut that down like to maybe one scene where you come in and somebody has this on. Right. But there was. I swear at least a good half hour of this movie was devoted to like, if you just sliced together all the bits of TV that you had to watch in this, mm-hmm. it was at least a half, you hour. Think it was half an hour. And then, and then if you add on top of it, the Sharon Tate movie that they make you watch parts of, yeah. which literally you are just watching sh- actual Sharon Tate in this terrible Dean Martin movie. It is. So the, again, the I've the watched movie, a lot of Dean Martin movies and they're not great, but this I, one was incredibly unbearable. What, it's hard to have movie? to watch it in this movie. I can't remember the name of this movie. Actually, I'm going to look at it okay, right now. You, you look it up right um, now. But I mean, I'm just I'm just saying that like the amount of time that you as the audience have to spend watching what apparently Quentin Tarantino thinks is maybe he's got like a nostalgia for or he's, you know, got some uh, kind of special endearing feelings for like, yeah, I don't have any of that. And he doesn't do anything to draw out kind of a feeling of endearment. In okay. me as the audience. I mean, I, it, it took up way too much of my time that I will never get back <laughs> to to uh, misquote Robert Mueller. I take your observation. OK, you take my I take my I take your observation. <laughs> you take it. As in, <laughs> I recognize it and I can see where where you might think that. But if I may enter a but for the uh, please do, please. The, uh, the other side the must abutting speak. case. The other we'll side hear, must we'll hear speak you. here. So. So, OK, first of all. It is fascinating because the specific time period that Tarantino is talking about here and the specific place, I think, is very important to understand the context here. We're talking Los Angeles, Los Angeles, 1969. Los Angeles, ladies and gentlemen. And we're not talking Dennis Hopper. We're no. not talking. We're not talking the cool people. Jack Nicholson. No. no, we're talking the lame people who are desperately trying to remain hip and cool. We're talking like, what was Frank Sinatra up to in 1969? (laughs) You know, we're talking like people who are confused by hippies and think, well, maybe it just means dressing in colorful shirts, (laughs) you know, like there's, so in, in the first place, Los Angeles back then was thought of as kind of this phony place. I mean, when it comes to music, and, and I think this is isn't actually it, not true. Isn't it still thought of as kind of a phony place? Yeah, but it comes and goes from Los Angeles being cool. Sometimes it can be kind of cool. I feel like in the 80s it was thought of as pretty cool, right? But in the late 60s, Los Angeles was like the phony hippie place. That's true. Like It was like in the shadow of San Francisco. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like the real bands were from San mm-hmm. Francisco. The fake bands were from Los, were yeah. Los Angeles. Bands recorded in Los Angeles. Yeah. Now... I 100% disagree with that because I kind of hate most of the San Francisco bands. Thank you, Grateful Dead. And I like (laughs) the L.A. bands like the birds who I think are fantastic. But, you know, but but that's the popular perception is that Los Angeles isn't really cool. It's desperately trying to be cool without actually being cool. So that's the world that this is set in. Also, we have watched so many like bad comedies from the late 1960s because I'm personally kind of fascinated with them. I made you watch all those Dean Martin movies. All the really super misogynistic ones. Yeah. Like uh, How to Murder Your Wife. Yes. Like uh, uh, what's that one with the really bad Lord Love a Duck. Yeah. You know, like these are amazingly misbegotten films from people who do not understand who understand cultures changing but don't understand how or why or if there's even still a space for right them, like right? no matter how hard they try they're still like outside yeah. of it like the famous <laughs> character the mr jones in bob dylan's ballad of a thin man you know something is happening but you don't know what it is do you mr jones rick dalton <laughs> is one of these guys yeah he truly you know? is and and so to some extent is the brad pitt character but we'll get to that later what I, where i think the difference is so you know the television they're showing is uniformly bad television because basically almost all television that was in the twilight zone back then is bad television or Columbo. <laughs> yeah, Columbo was barely starting. We did look it up. It was yes. a movie of a week in Nick, 1969. Nick made a million dollar bet with me that it didn't start Nick till bet 71. Me one million dollars, <laughs> and I know and, you and he, million so he, he lost because the first yeah. Columbo episode was in 1960. But it was a movie of the week, it wasn't really a TV show I, episode. I know, still, but still, yeah, right. You they didn't make the first Columbo in 1969. You owe me one million dollars. So, so, anyways, so that's the world it's taking place in, right? I got you. So, it is, it's supposed to be bad. I mean, it, there's no way it cannot be okay, bad. Like, okay. nothing about it can possibly... Isn't that maybe also why, like, 
you know, the 60s were ending. Like, yeah. it, it, it's like this curdled end of an era. The 60s are way less cool than almost everyone thinks they are. Yeah, but, like, like especially the end of the 60s. When you spend time with the actual artifacts, right, you know, mm-hmm. like, when you read the actual books that people read in mm-hmm. 1969, Ron McEwen was an incredibly popular poet in 1969, and if you know who he is, you know way too much about the 1960s. Okay, but here's the thing, though. Here, I mean, Quentin Tarantino is a guy who pretty much like always figures out how to pepper his movies with like fun cultural things. Right. Yes. So I'm sure he could have found some things to to include in this movie and and then some things to not include in it. Well, you know, like to to shift the balance back to like what was cool about that time. Yeah, I was setting up my case. Oh, I didn't sorry, finish it yet. Sorry, I didn't finish I, it yet. I interrupted. I'm sorry. I was sorry. being a little long-winded. I'll try to. I'll try. I'll to, give back the floor. I'll try to summarize. <laughs> so, so the thing is, you're you're dealing with these cultural artifacts that, I mean, come, they're kind of a tough sell. So I, I grant you that the the buy-in's pretty hard. But the thing is, it they're 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 funny in a way, and every single part of what Quentin Tarantino shows you, in a way, is pretty funny. Like I think that all. I mean, he shows you. The Great Escape, but with with Leonardo DiCaprio badly acting instead of Steve McQueen badly acting. Some people think that's a good movie. It's a bad movie, and it's even funnier with a bad Leonardo DiCaprio acting. There is the the whole entire scene of his guest spot on Lancer is just a masterclass in bad acting. Like it's amazing what what he does with his hands and like you know cigarettes in that in that. It's, it's kind of a fascinating way that okay, shows okay. you how let's, people don't Let me anymore. just say, let's keep separate from our, our assessment okay. of like the everything that you're shown about that time from the whole part of the movie okay. where you see Leonardo DiCaprio okay, then, acting on Lancer because that is a, that's the only really good part of this movie. <laughs> that is the only really, truly good part of this yes. movie. And it's, it's truly funny and it truly does get like at that... Uh, you know, we're setting a thing in another time when like there were different standards yeah. for acting and whatever. And like, okay, so so the cool things he shows you is number one, he shows you like a couple title sequences, which were pretty good from some of those shows back then, and I think have a lot are kind of fun to watch. Mm-hmm. He shows you, um, I think there's like some sort of cop show that that he that there's like an FBI show, an I FBI think. show, yeah. right? And it's I think that's pretty funny. I mean, I think that that's supposed really? to be funny. No, I'm just it was you, tedious. You didn't think it was, it was funny all at tedious. All. No. Not funny. I don't know. I mean, I think it's pretty funny. Um, other than that, what does he show? I mean, he, and, and he plays for you a ton of Paul Revere and the Raiders songs. I think Paul Revere and the Raiders are the secret heroes of this film. I think that a rejuvenation of Paul Revere and the Raiders career could be the best possible outcome <laughs> of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Because let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, they are a classic band that you can still buy for you know under Just five dollars at any record store. Just you maybe go like four hundred pennies, but still pennies. Better than the Monkees. Not quite as good as the Love and Spoonful, yeah. but a solid band, and he plays at length at least three of their songs. In but this like, film. okay, okay, but like, w- again, like he's a guy who definitely like I associate with good soundtracks. Yes. I associate him with like using like an entire song in a scene in yeah. a way that like a this lot. This is of a bit people, more jukeboxy. It is so jukebox. This is like something that drives me crazy in other films okay. where they're like, oh, to set the stage and the you know the time that you're in, we're just gonna play you like. 10 to 20 seconds of a bunch of different songs from that time he he almost does that in this he, well, i mean he, he might give you a little bit longer but it's still. pretty diagenetic because mostly it's like radio right like so yeah. most of these people are listening to the radio and they flip it on and they flip it off and they yeah. change channels and that's sort right of where right most that's of the, the whole thing that the whole thing has that sense in like the radio and the tv that you're seeing right yeah but, that you're flipping through things but like i think he's still like he has some great songs like we listen to the whole soundtrack it's actually really great yeah it's got rambling Gambling Man by the Bob Seger system. That's and not on the actual soundtrack, though. <laughs> yes, is it is. It? Yes, it is. Oh, it just okay. wasn't on when we oh, okay. played it. Okay. And isn't there a Neil Diamond song, too? Yeah, yeah. Did that Brother make Loves the Travel cut? And Salvation. Okay, because that featured really heavily in the trailer, which yeah. I was like, great song placement. This is wonderful. And totally. then I, I didn't actually notice it in the movie. It's, it, it is it happen. on the radio somewhere? Yeah, yeah. It's when yeah. Brad Pitt's driving and see, he's going to pick up. It's a the, shame because it's like, I get you're going to have like awesome songs on the radio, but like, he missed his opportunity, like say in Kill Bill One, where he has that whole five, six, seven, eight song. Yeah, that's playing during the like the samurai uh, the yeah this, the action sequence. Yeah, that one. It's like, where where was that? You know, like I feel like well, he totally missed doing what again, like another characteristic thing yeah. that I think he's done really well, and I enjoy it. And when other people just like 
oh, we're going to have snippets of songs. It drives me crazy. He did that. It drove me crazy. <laughs> it doesn't matter that it's his film. It drove me crazy. I think it I think it worked in the film. I mean, I get your frustration because this is a very different film for him. I mean, you're totally right about the dialogue. He does not do the usual Quentin Tarantino dialogue, mm-hmm. by and large. People have a lot shorter lines, a lot less lines. And they while well, they talk about pop culture, they talk about it in this offhand L.A. way mm-hmm. that sort of is almost code in a way. Like, it's, it's not the big fan style talking that you get in all the other Quentin Tarantino, the obsessive fan style talking that you get in the, the other Quentin Tarantino films. Um, this is a movie though, about people that just like literally like watch TV all day long. Right. Mm-hmm. That's like all the characters do that. And they talk about TV, watching TV when they're not actually watching TV. I mean, it is in large ways, I think a very interesting movie about very un- uninteresting TV. Yeah. Now, if, if you can, if you can find a way of being interested in that, I think the movie does have a lot to, to give, but I can, un- I mean, like I said, I understand your criticism as far as that goes, but that's also just the side issue because your main criticism with the movie, I think centers around that third act. Oh yes. Yeah. Do you want to talk about yeah, that we now? Should, we should get into that. Okay. So my reading on this, I think was different than yours. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, so I can't remember how much we said about what happens, but essentially like, yeah, the Manson family kids, they, they you know, there's like these, there's actually four of them in the car. They come up the driveway. They're going to kill Sharon Tate. They, they say something about how, you know, I guess Charles Manson has told them to like kill her and make it look witchy, which is kind of a funny word. But um, you don't you don't see Charles Manson ever tell these kids what to do. You basically just see them acting on their own in this whole scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you've seen some of them before at that moment in the in the body of the film where Brad Pitt goes to their yeah, so ranch. You see all of them then. And uh, well, actually, I don't think you see. Uh, I think you see most of them. You don't see Ethan Hawke's kid. Oh yeah, Ethan Hawke's daughter. Who's, anyways. But um, anyhow, they they basically instead decide to like invade um, Rick Dalton's home and to kill him, and um, they bust in. And Brad Pitt is there and to greet them, and he's tripping on a what an acid laced cigarette. Yeah, and he's like kind of chatting with them, and then um, all hell breaks loose. He almost single handedly kills all three of them, well, I and think his dog, do yeah, he has his pit bull attack them, and um, yeah, basically kills all of them. He gets stabbed in the leg. That's it. Um, Rick Dalton is in his pool out back the whole time Mostly and finally some one of the kids breaks through his window with a gun and is you know horribly mangled at that point but is still shooting wildly in the air rick dalton gets out of the pool and then like flame throws her to death which doesn't make any sense because she's in a pool right but whatever and um and then the cops come and, you know, oh, I think Rick Dalton's uh, wife, who's Italian and was sleeping in the other room, also comes out or they, they bring her out of her bedroom. Mm-hmm. She punches the one girl and then runs back to her bedroom. Yeah. I It's anyhow. OK, so. I like to see graphic violence. I'm weird like that, I guess. But the thing is, like. All of this graphic violence felt really wrong to me and. I didn't feel like ultimately I was like, I was just kind of like, why do I not feel like I enjoyed that? Like, why, why didn't I enjoy watching that? Like that really disturbed me. Not like the, the graphicness disturbed me, but I was like, I didn't feel like I was seeing justice prevail at all. Like there was no sense of feeling like these people who got killed deserved it. Um, and I felt, I actually felt sorry for them. Like I was like, why would, why would Quentin Tarantino, who's obviously made this movie because he wanted to write the wrongs of history of having Sharon Tate, you know, pregnant Sharon Tate murdered in her house with a bunch of her friends by the Manson family. Why, why would he do that in a way where he instead makes you feel sorry for the Manson family people who tried to kill her? You know, that, that's, that's what I, that's what I was really confused and I didn't enjoy what I saw and it left me uh, more disturbed by the people that were laughing their asses off in the seats behind us during that whole scene yeah. than anything a, else. That's not an unusual reaction from what I've read. Really? Because yeah, that, that, that's pretty disturbing. Um, should, uh, should I talk about... Can I... Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Do yeah. you want me to like... So I kind of thought about this for a while yeah. and... Uh, basically it comes down to, uh, the fact that like, well, when you see people get 
really uh really hurt in a movie like very very you know you see a lot of like abuse or even murder you know like just all kinds of violence hurled at a, at a character or a, a set of characters i feel like if the characters haven't done anything to anyone in that movie yet to really feel like they deserve it mm-hmm. then they're victims they're that's that's all there is to it um and the three characters from the Manson family that come to Rick Dalton's house that night, they, none of the three of them have done anything in the film, in the actual world of the film. They haven't done anything violent to anybody. They haven't, they haven't, we haven't seen them so much as like, you know, even like a petty crime or anything. They ha- they haven't done anything to anybody. They've only said a couple of things that make us think, oh, maybe they're going to murder somebody. But like, I think it's uh, it feels like completely undeserved violence against them. There's there's no satisfaction in seeing them killed because it's not vengeance at that point. It's um, you see Brad Pitt's character really like hurt them and then murder them and you feel like he's a pretty evil guy uh which is actually supported earlier in the film by the fact that they reveal that uh everybody says he's murdered his wife and got away with it which and then there's this cutaway to a scene of like his wife being really annoying on a boat and he's got like a harpoon gun in his hand and then it like cuts away it cuts away implying that she was you know he harpooned her to stop her from being annoying yes yes which is like the stupidest thing ever but um which is pretty misogynistic right you know extremely um yes yes it's slightly funny but pretty misogynistic it's kind of funny but it's also like where you you sort of like he's He's a shady character then, right? He's not just a shady character. He's a, he's a pretty shitty dude. You know what I mean? Like, you also see him beat up Jackie Chan. Yeah. There's an, yeah, there's an interesting Which, aside where, like, so he's, he's not allowed to work aside. on... What's that? It's in the same aside. It's like an aside oh, yeah. within an aside. Exactly. Yeah. He's not allowed to work on the the Lancer show with Rick because you know the the stunt supervisor is the same guy from the Green Hornet, and he's got a past with the guy. So he thinks about it, the past with the guy, and the past with the guy is that like he you know Rick Brow beats this guy, which is played by Kurt Russell, into letting uh, Brad Pitt work on the Green Hornet. And he, 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 while working on it, gets in a fight with Jackie Chan, who's portrayed kind of as a, as kind of a jerk in this movie, which is kind of funny because Jackie Chan, I mean, not Jackie Chan, Bruce Lee. Uh, oh yeah. Sorry. Because Bruce Lee is like universally, you know, a beloved sort of tragic early death character for, I think most film goers. Right. And he's also thought of as like one of the toughest guys to ever live. So in the movie you see, you see this like, I think he's also thought of as like a really disciplined guy. Yeah. Not like a guy who would lose his cool. You see Rick, you know, you, you see Cliff Booth, who's a guy that, you know, no one's ever heard of sort of best, the, the toughest karate master, that any that most most Americans are going to be familiar with in a fight. So it's this way of the, making him seem tougher than like, you know, God, basically. Right. So like essentially, you know, you get to the end of the movie and you have like the guy who won the fight is I mean, I'm not saying like like when you know about the Manson family murders. Yeah, there's that there's, happened in real life, which I which overshadows I, the whole film. I admittedly don't know that much about because okay. I don't really care. I'm sorry. But I don't really care. You know what I mean? Like, you it's, love true crime stuff. I do love true crime, but it's just like one of those, like, I don't really care. It's not like a thing that I have learned that much about, and I really don't care. It sucks. It's true. But it's like, it's a cult. You know what? Like, it was a cult. Like, You did not say that about the Rajneesh. They were a cult. I know, but you weren't like, it sucks, it's a cult, I'm not interested. <laughs> Yeah, well, but anyway, but like simple murder is just like, it's kind of boring. You know what I mean? Like just a bunch of people being like, oh, this guy told us to go kill somebody. So we did it. Like, that's kind of boring, right? Like they don't have any motive. And that's the thing. It's like there's, there's, Uh, I feel like Quentin Tarantino, he doesn't get into it. Quentin Tarantino gave you this really big body of the movie where uh, Brad Pitt's character actually does have like all this time he spends with the Manson family where he goes to the ranch that they're living on. 
and like kind of checks things out because he thinks it seems a little shady. And then he, you know, the, the worst thing that they do to him there is that they, uh, one of them slashes his car tire, which it's, he points out not even his car. So they didn't really do anything to him. And then he punches the guy, makes the guy change the tire, and then he leaves. Like, yeah. there's still like, you don't see the Manson family in this film do anything that you think really warrants having their characters brutally beat and then killed in yeah. horrendous ways. Yeah, but, you, but, but the I average feel, moviegoer is going to know what they did in real life. But I still think that you you still need to show it. Like, hmm. for example, in Inglorious Bastards, they still show the characters like... Um, Mel, uh, uh, is it Melanie Laurent? No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Her character at the beginning her has whole her whole family, family murdered. Yeah. You know, like there's a we know how bad the Nazis were. There's not a single person who's going to be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. But they, he still felt like it was important to mm -hmm. show you her entire family get killed. So, you know what her character's motivation is. You know, there's there's still like a basic need in storytelling that you need to show the characters that are going to get killed. That is. Okay, I'm going to okay. get into my thing now. Right. OK, go ahead. So that is if the point of the movie is as straightforward as everyone seems to assume it is. Now, I'm going to turn into a movie conspiracy guy here because I actually think what Quentin Tarantino is doing with this movie is some next-level jujitsu shit. <laughs> okay. I don't think it's as straight... Because if you read this movie as straightforwardly as, as, as most people do, right, it is an incredibly conservative movie. Basically, the argument of the film is if only... The, you know, white bread American Hollywood non hippie hating conservative types were allowed to run things. Charles Manson wouldn't have got very far and everybody would be alive today and, you know, making pretty movies and getting laid and being misogynistic. And, you know, good old America would keep going going on with no black people in sight, because I think there's like no black people in this film. too. Mm -hmm. So. Right. So, like, you know, at heart, if you read this movie straight. That's such a weird argument from the guy who made Jackie Brown mm -hmm. and the guy who made Django Unchained mm -hmm. and the guy who claims that he hates John Ford movies because John Ford movies are all about killing, you know, Indians and like, you know, about being really conservative. So, like, what happened, Quentin? Did you become a secret Republican in the last five years? Or or are you doing some super secret jujitsu filmmaking shit, which is what I think is going on? Because what you say about this stuff, about the way they they frame the killing of the Manson family at the end of it, it's all true. And you're totally right. Like, it's set up in a way that is deeply unsatisfying. I mean, I've got no problem with Quentin Tarantino's violence. I actually pulled up because in 2003, when I was writing film reviews for my college newspaper. Oh, my God. I love when you have, like, reference material to yourself in I the do. past. I do. I reviewed Kill Bill, volume one. Brilliant. And I said... If you believe, like I do, that fight scenes are to action movies, what dance numbers are to musicals, then Kill Bill is the feature-length highlight reel, the singing in the rain of the revenge film genre. Tarantino, the obsessive movie geek he is, has taken the best parts of every kung fu action movie since time began and used them to fashion his own B-movie to end all B-movies. Standing on the shoulders of others, Kill Bill is a giant, a juggernaut, the logical culmination of a century of experimentation in how to film feet meeting faces. Which That's is totally fantastic. True. Yeah. Which is totally true. You're spot on. The 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 violence in Kill Bill is almost like ballet. It's like oh my dance God, scenes. Yes. It tells a story. It has it has rise and fall and characters and beauty to it. The violence It is a conversation. Yes, the violence right? in Once Upon yeah. a Time in Hollywood is purely disturbing. You know, and, and I like the like the dragged across concrete guy, the bone trauma guy he does disturbing violence too but this is disturbing in a way that makes you because because the the reaction that it elicits from your fellow film goers makes you make me question like oh man am i surrounded by like psychopaths i was pretty sure i was you know what i mean like like you get this i got that i got this sort of reaction where i was like number one kind of grossed out by what i was seeing like at one point brad pitt sort of smashes a lady's face off of a counter like you know 15 times in a row right yeah he smashes her face off of many surfaces and it's like a teenager you know it's a teenage girl that he's doing this to. yeah and it's it's disturbing to watch yeah i don't care what that teenage girl has done it's still disturbing to watch there's righteous fire i mean but i think secretly what tarantino's been doing in the past i don't even know how many movies especially since in glorious bastards is exploring 
sort of the way that we process violence, right? So like he's 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 being like, okay, violence in film is one thing, right? Violence in film is like when is it justified, when is it not? How far can you push it? When when how how what kind of actions can someone do and still be the hero of a story and still be a protagonist? In Inglorious Bastards, you forgive what Brad Pitt and any of those guys do to the Nazis because they're Nazis. So like there's this line that they cross and you're like, what well, doesn't matter because it's Nazis. So there's no real line. I mean, I rooted for them to kill every single Nazi on screen there. I thought it was great. I thought it was cathartic. Right. Same thing happened in Django Unchained because Leonardo DiCaprio is, is a, you know, plantation owning evil, evil dude with a bunch of other evil dudes. Right. So when Jamie Foxx goes on some killing rampage and is drenched in blood, you feel you feel cathartic about that. There's like he's doing hideous things to people. But he's had hideous things done to him exactly like what you're talking about that have justified this. And so while you're watching him do these horrific things that out of, out of context are, are a horror movie, you're on the side of the man doing the horrific things. I think Tarantino's fascinated by this line. And I think that in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he's pushing it just to that other side where he's like, OK, well, what if we take away the visual justification? What if we take away like that we we don't see these these kids and what if we make them like because these these are teenagers that did this this bad stuff. Oh yeah, right? they're children. They're children. Essentially. They're brainwashed children. Mm -hmm. What if we take away we don't show them doing anything evil in the rest of the film? We we create this character who's all powerful physically. Brad Pitt mm -hmm. has beat up Bruce Lee in the film. Mm -hmm. He's capable of handling himself in any situation. You're never really afraid of his for him. No. Because he's, you know, you you already established he can beat up Bruce Lee. So mm -hmm. what, are, what are these Manson family kids going to do to him? And then we have him viciously murder them. Viciously murder them. We also have him With like... With the help of his Sick a dog on him. And I was, I, was, I was talking to you about this. I don't think that there's ever been a film hero who's killed somebody with a dog. I was trying history. to argue John Wick and, and, and kind of like, I was kind of bullshitting because I don't, I haven't, I, I don't you think I ever saw the first one, but I just assumed because he has that pit bull that he like loves. No. That his pit bull has like no, also attacked no, people. Nobody, I mean, sometimes heroes will have dogs that bite people, right? Yeah. But never kill people. That's, that's exclusively as far as I know. And I'd love to, if somebody can put up a, a I different. I not know that this dog actually killed anybody in this It ripped one. off somebody's arm, like hand. Oh, that's it, true. It bit, it bit off somebody's yeah. hand. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, woof, right? It, like, it was extreme. It, it was extreme dog yeah, violence. Yeah, it wasn't and, just dog and coming sticking through. sticking dogs I also people. tried to say, like, Turner and Hooch. But you were like, oh, I think the dog in that just, like, comes to the rescue and, like, bites somebody. Yeah. And it's, I, it's, I think you might be right about it's that. It's not like this. Yeah. Like, the like the sticking of a dog to kill somebody is, like, green room style, like, yeah. you like know. Yeah, like, we have dogs that are trained stuff. to kill. You know, it's it's exclusively villain stuff. So to have mm -hmm. like this guy with a draw, dog is trained to kill that he uses to this extent is exclusively villain stuff. So I think what the movie is supposed to do is make you kind of grossed out by this stuff and make you question the entire patriarchal society that Brad Pitt's character and, and Leonardo DiCaprio's character are built upon. You know, and I think that that's on purpose. Like, I think that Tarantino is reacting to a country that elected Donald Trump. I mean, I think that that, that he there's no way he's like not, he's essentially not the, about the, that. He, he's reacting to a country that likes the bad guy. But it's not even the bad guy, but that that has conflated good guys and bad guys to the extent like it's, it's not a question that 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 the Charles Manson family should be stopped in this film. Just like it's not a question in any World War II movie that the Nazis should be stopped. But it's a, but the American thing, the American way of doing it is to not do it with such cruelty. This is right, a film right. with incredible cruelty at the end of it. Yeah. Incredible cruelty. And I think that that's a critique of just sort of American values, that we will allow that sort of cruelty in our politics, you know, I mean, that's clearly what's what's happened in our politics, I think. And I just don't think that that I mean, I just I find it really hard to believe that it's as conservative of a movie as it appears to be on face value and that he's making these mistakes that you're talking about with like the way it's staged and stuff on purpose. And that he's staging violence that is not ballet like that is not scored to music in the same sort of way that is not the sort of like you know, beautiful, that doesn't have a beauty to it. Like it, like he, he, he's certainly capable of doing, I just don't think it's an accident. And so if it's not an accident, what's the, what's the message of the film? The message of the film is that Brad Pitt's character is a psychopath that gets away with stuff. Yeah. You know, 
And if you read the movie like that, I think it's actually a really fascinating film. Do you think, though, that also it's like part of it is just saying, I mean, here's this like, see, I, I, I think that you might you might have an idea that is worth exploring, but I also it doesn't save the movie for me. It doesn't it's, save the movie. No, for you? no, it still doesn't because I don't really believe that that is that well engineered a movie. I don't. Know. I just don't. <laughs> I just really don't. Um, I mean, I think that Quentin Tarantino knows what he's doing most of the time, but I think he also is a guy who goes mostly on his instincts when he's making yeah. movies, and I I think that like his. I think that it's him that's changing and that it, I don't think it's him being reactive. In no, a way. you don't think no. so. You, you think no, that so, it, is, I mean, it is a deeply conservative So, film. So like, uh, yeah. So here's, <laughs> it's like you basically, okay, I'm going to talk about two things. I'm going to say about like this movie. And then I also want to like mention how the hateful eight, sure. I didn't, I didn't really enjoy the end of that the first time I yeah. saw it, but I do like it as a movie. Yeah. So the end of this movie, once upon a time in Hollywood, um, it's, it's like you have, like I said, you have Sharon Tate at the end. She's this pregnant, blonde, blue eyed woman, right? She's like this, uh, she's just like this, you know, man's idea of like, oh, what's, what is like the most, um, precious thing that we could save as manly men, right? Can, can like, I just make a little tiny aside? Cause we're not going to get to it otherwise. I have watched some Sharon Tate movies, and she was a terrible actress. Well, they show you the movie. And they show you too much of the movie. But isn't she that awful in that too? So I've, I didn't see that movie. Yeah. Um, but I saw the pre the the uh, that's a sequel to, I mean, so in in the late sixties, Dean Martin made made a couple two fake James Bond movies. There, Matt Helm is the character. One was called The Silencers, and then there's this one, which is called The Wrecking Crew, and it's the sequel to it. The Silencers was nearly unwatchable because of how terrible it was. I watched that movie, and I regret it. Yes. Now, I saw Sharon Tate in this movie called Don't Make Waves, which is actually the last film by uh, um, this guy that I love. And I can't remember his name, but he made Sweet Smell of Success, which is one of the greatest Ooh, movies that ever is, made. yes. That's a great so, movie. So he made this movie called Don't Make Waves with Tony Curtis and Sharon Tate, and it is incredibly, terribly bad. It's so bad that it is just depressing to watch the man who made Sweet Spell of Success has directed this film. And Sharon Tate, it's like watching a space alien. Like, mm-hmm. she's she's positively inhuman as an actress, <laughs> I think. So, I mean, listen, I, I'm not going to argue anything about maybe she was a totally sweet, lovely person. Maybe she's actually even super intelligent. She reads books in in, in Quentin Tarantino's movie anyway. Um, you know, I everybody, always... everybody reads books in that movie. Did yeah, you notice that? That's true. When they're not the watching child, television. Even Leonardo DiCaprio, everybody's reading. <laughs> but books she reads in that like movie. smart people books because she's she gets out tested derivatives by uh, Thomas Hardy, which yes. then you know Polanski made into a movie later on. Yes. But Sharon Tate, the real actress, man, she did not have a bright future ahead so, of her. So, but anyways, what I'm saying is that doesn't matter, right? Because like the manly man would think, oh, it doesn't matter what her career was because she really ultimately like has achieved her her you know pinnacle as a woman by becoming a pregnant woman yeah. right so with to, in order to yes yeah. extremely conservative like this is the thing worth saving more than anything in the world is this blonde blue-eyed woman who is pregnant up in the hollywood hills and you know like the the whole part about brad pitt's character i mean he's a stunt double right like he's the guy that comes in like a stunt double conceptually is a guy that comes in and does the real work when the people who are, um, you know, hired to, to be the face of what you're doing can't actually do the real work. You know, he's there like a stunt double is a guy who's like able to risk his life. He's able to like be that guy who's just going to be a body in place of whatever. Right. Like in a way, having just conceptually a stunt double take the place of Sharon Tate in terms of like who the Manson family come and, and, you know, try to kill mm-hmm. like that is like, that's the epitome of a decoy right there. You know, like mm-hmm. this is, he's like drawing them away from her and he's sacrificing his own, his own well-being, right? Which I mean, it, it's again, not really a contest because these kids barely know what they're doing and they come up with like a couple of knives and a antique looking gun that I don't think that they know how to use. And yeah. And, it's, and, and like, you know, what do they meet? They meet this guy who's like, like a Superman and his and his like guy out in the pool with a flamethrower, you know, like there's not even a contest there. But anyways, what I'm saying is I feel like it's it's 
you know, it's still just ridiculously conservative. It's I don't think that there's anything too smart about it. I think so it's, you think it's, a, it's you just see I think it's straight just straight up and I, and I think that Quentin Tarantino I think that the choice of like being like oh you know who's going to actually like save Sharon Tate it's going to be this guy and even if he's like a bad guy that's okay like if he's a guy who's like you know presumably like there's rumors that he's killed his wife like oh that just makes him like this guy that you know in hollywood you know like everyone's got like this messy past in hollywood i mean if you, you talk to if you if you like if you listen to anything that brad easton ellis says it's like people in hollywood love dirt on other people in hollywood right so yeah. like having a character that like there's rumors that he killed his wife and got away with it I have a feeling that, like, maybe some people would love him more because of that, unfortunately, you know? Hmm. They're like, oh, this is the guy that, like, beat up Bruce Lee and, like, you know, they say that he killed his wife. Hmm. You know, like, and then and then he's the guy that he's just like a man's man who, like, eats mac and cheese and has this dog and, you know, goes around doing chores for his... Uh, his pretty yeah, but don't Hollywood you think guy. the fact that they're not, like, just friends, that there, that there is an employee... Uh, employer relationship between the two main characters makes it kind of like about capitalism in a way. Like I, that's what I think. It's one of those things that like it perverts the nature of that relationship and makes it like it makes it cheaper than if they were just friends and makes it not heroic. You know what I mean? Like so, the idea is like no, oh, no, this, no. But I think the fact that like it's you know these employers it, employee relationship. I don't is, like, think the closest it's relationship. I don't think it is though. I think it. Well, I mean it is, but at the same time, it's like. I think that there's like this aspect of nostalgia, you know, this conservative nostalgia about like back when you could like own a person. Well, back basically. when you could count on your butler. Just have to like save a you. person on your payroll, you know? Yeah. I know. See, I, I think it's you extremely think Tarantino's into that. I don't know, man. I don't know. But so, anyways, let me go on to talk about okay. like how, um, you know, my reaction to Hateful Eight wasn't what I expected either, mm -hmm. which. We had a weird experience watching that, so that's why I wanted to give it a second chance. Also, we didn't see the very, very beginning of it when we saw it. So second viewing of it, I really enjoyed it. But like I said, I mentioned before how like Sam Jackson's character in that, like Sam Jackson has played a lot of different characters over the years, right? And he's played both heroes and villains and just like supporting roles and stuff. And, you know, but he's a guy that you generally enjoy. Mm -hmm. um, and so his character goes through this transformation and hateful aid of being a guy who's like carrying Lincoln's letter. And he's a black man who served in the Civil War who's carrying Lincoln's letter. And so you're like, definitely like, you feel this need to be like on his side anyways, instinctually you're like mm -hmm. oh i would this is i would back this guy in a fight right but then he like says this horrendous story to bruce dern yeah out of nowhere and it's the thing that like it's such a it's such a it's such a complicated moment in that movie because it makes you really i don't know it makes me anyways really dislike sam jackson's character yeah. from that moment on in the movie I can't back him in a fight. You know, mm. there's, there's no way I can back him in a fight because I think he's a cruel person. doesn't matter. Like, you know, that there's still just this sense of like, maybe things have been done to him, but you don't see it. You only see him, you know? Yeah. Um, and then by the end of the movie, you have him and you have Walden Goggins who, who's kind of like a lovable Buffoon. idiot. Yeah. Right. Um, and then you have Daisy Domergue, you know, Jennifer Jason Lee, and and they finally hang her at the end of it. And I really I wanted her to live. I can't explain it. And I don't really know why. But like, I felt like she like, again, you you she's a tough lady that you, you see her beat up continually in it. You know, mm -hmm. she's really she's like hit in the face so many times in that movie. And it's kind of funny, but it's also like you. You, the more she's hit in the face, the more you're like, this lady's tough. Like yeah. this lady's really tough. Like she might be a criminal. She might've killed a lot of people in, in her own cruel ways, but like, she's really tough and you kind of want her to get away with it. Right. Like yeah. there's, the, I she's don't know. The outlaw that was, she is the outlaw, but yeah. like who doesn't love an outlaw too? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's no reason that the outlaw can't be the one you're rooting for. I have a convoluted theory about that one too, but I'm I know we, we, we could say <laughs> it for another time, but at any rate, like I just feel like Quentin Tarantino has gone through his career and like, like, 
like I said, hateful eight, I came out of having a, a conflicted reaction to the end of it Mm -hmm. based on who I wanted to survive. And, and this one, it's not like I didn't want Sharon Tate to survive. Although, like I said, I really don't care. Like whatever, she already died. It's, you know, it's way different than like seeing Inglorious Bastards or, or Django Unchained where like, it's not just one person or like a couple people's lives at stake. It is like an entire race of people whose lives are at stake. You know what I mean? Like that's what those movies are about. This movie is about saving one person who they don't really give you a whole lot of information about in this movie. Like, sure, she she likes to dance at the Playboy Mansion. Woo, you know, she likes to have friends over and she likes to put on Paul Revere and dance to it in her room. <laughs> she I, she and, got me on her side right there. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, why why is she so much more important? Like, the Manson kids that are in this? Yeah. Why? Like, what's wrong with them? They kill people. This is the only first time that they've ever killed anyone, though. Like in history, this would have been the first time that they well, would do anything. Well, that's not like actually that. true. So but those exact those people kids, went maybe and killed one of somebody them else. Did, maybe one of them did kill somebody. And then the that. other thing is, like, ultimately, like, who do you really have feelings about in terms of the Sharon Tate, you know, murders? It's, it's Charles Manson, right? Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, but really like, in the film. everybody hates Charles Manson. He's an infamous person because of that. He wasn't there, but he's still infamous because of it. Right. Like, so he just he's in this movie for like 30 seconds. He has nothing to do with it. And there's no reason that like the outcome of the action in this movie would result in Charles Manson getting like put away for life. No, there's no reason to expect that. Yeah, but the which, which about, I find also deeply unsatisfying. The movie's about saving a princess, right? And Sharon Tate's the princess, and I think that's. But that's why sort is of the she the princess? Because actually, in cultural, a lot of people, most of it came from that Joan Didion book, The White Album, where she talks about the Sharon Tate murders being the end of the 1960s and the the destruction of innocence and all this sort of stuff, which is kind of bullshit. But but I mean, so there is so a you're, cultural wait wait idea. you're telling me that somebody who goes to hang out at the play playboy mansion for funsies is a symbol of, is a symbol of innocence <laughs> yeah. and has like what they point out in that scene at the playboy mansion that she's got like two dudes basically yeah they're like yeah you know she's got like two well dudes. And, and the big elephant in the room of this whole entire movie is roman polanski yeah we talked briefly about that yeah i also want to say that i think that quentin tarantino excuses roman polanski in this movie from what he did yeah he does he completely does i mean and, I and, he, and he does it in one line he does it in yeah. well, I mean, a couple of lines, but essentially at the Playboy he does Mansion. It a do you, do you want to? Yeah, go, you know, go ahead. Cause, cause okay, the so one Steve would... McQueen, or you know, some actor playing a kind of a kind shoddy of bad Steve, SNL Steve McQueen. McQueen. <laughs> um, he he's he's hanging out with uh, I don't know who the lady is that he's hanging out with. Is it important at all? No, I don't. Anyways, know he's just having a chat with somebody at this raging party at the Playboy Mansion. Yeah, and. Um, and he's he's talking to her about how Sharon Tate has, you know, she she married Roman Polanski, but she's also like super into this other guy. Um, what's his name? Jay. Jay Inslee, I think, who actually is the basis of uh, Warren Beatty's character in Shampoo. Oh, okay. he's a famous Hollywood hairdresser. Oh, OK. <laughs> so anyways, he's talking he's talking with this lady about, you know, that kind of like complicated relationship and how she has like these two guys and whatever. And um and and the lady i think says something about like well she's got one type and he's like what is that and she's like what did she say she said something about like uh short dark haired and looks like they're 12 years old yeah and it's specifically that she points out that these guys both look like they're 12 years old and this is roman polanski who five years later is famous for you know drugging uh, and raping raping a 13 year old so that right there i don't think it's i don't you know, there's no reason that that line needs to be in this movie, but I think that it definitely is there because uh, if you if you associate Roman Polanski with being like a 12 year old, then that kind of absolves so him culturally from raping a 13 year old. Yeah, I mean, I listen. I watched Roman Polanski movies. I'd still watch them today, you know. I, but I understand people who don't. Yeah, we're do not. That. We're not talking about that though. Um, we're talking about the fact that, like, you know, it's unnecessary to have this line in this movie. But in the specific. whole the whole Roman Polanski thing, like the fact that Roman Polanski is a guy who did something pretty uniformly terrible a couple of years after this, and then spent the rest of his life basically on the lamb in you exile. Know, in exile, um, because of that. 
is I think this shadow over the entire film that it doesn't really deal with at all. It doesn't doesn't do anything to deal with at all. I mean, not, and obviously part of that is because like this all happens in a part in a history timeline that doesn't exist in this movie. Um, let's presume that the Roman Polanski of this movie does not have a predilection towards yeah, thirteen year olds and just has a monogamous relationship <laughs> with his wife Sharon for the rest. Who of Who may his or life. may not be monogamous with him? Yeah, well, you know. The I think it's implied that she's also having sex with the other guy. That's just Jay. a hairdresser. Whatever. No, he's not. No one's ever just a hairdresser. <laughs> Doesn't life touch you anything? They're just good friends. <laughs> anyway, I, 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 don't, I totally see your point in that line. I think that line is actually kind of gross. But, I, you know, like that's not enough to ruin a movie for me. Oh, also, can we can we point out how many times feet bare feet appear in this movie? Yeah, this is a Quentin Tarantino movie. Nick so thinks that this is like Quentin Tarantino as a thing about feet. Ladies it's his feet? footiest movie, I think, actually. Footiest. Yeah. Because there's like especially the woman who plays the hitchhiker, uh, Charles Manson lady. Pussycat. That, that's her name. Yeah. That's her, her character name, name, is, name is Pussycat. Pussycat. Yeah. Anyways, she puts her feet up on like Brad Pitt's dashboard when she's and driving squishes the them car. up against his like. And she's got like some like weirdo corn on one foot. She's and I don't want to like body shame this lady. Oh, no. She's a she. She's a. Well, let me also say, before I I body shame her about her corn on her foot that looks kind of gross and her feet that are she's kind a of dirty. Very gorgeous lady. She's a gorgeous lady, and there's a there's two scenes in this where she like flirts with Brad Pitt when he's like sort of stopped at a stoplight through the car window kind of and it is really charming like yeah, i got to say like effective. that is effective filmmaking and you don't see that sort of wordless stuff in films that often and and i i i love those moments like that's like one of those little moments you watch movies for i think all right i give you that if you sucked when it came to dialogue on this one at least he got some of the wordless stuff right? so that's what i think he was he was focused yeah. on you know i think that's mm -hmm. what he was focused on and i you know you got to try different things in your 10 movie career <laughs> <laughs> all right we should probably wrap this up we know there's a lot no more we, we could say a whole lot more i about say this, it's a solid but... seven I say it's, you know, I mean, my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie by far is Jackie Brown, um, The Kill Bills. Oh, Jackie Brown, Pulp Fiction, The Kill Bills right below that. And then depending on how I feel, Inglorious Bastards or uh, Django Unchained, which I both e kind of equally love. Then I would put this followed by Hateful Eight, followed by Death Proof, followed by actually my least favorite Quentin Tarantino is Reservoir Dogs. I just don't really connect with that film. I'm sorry. That is okay. And uh, for you, this is the bottom of the barrel, right? This is like not even on the list. Not even it's on so the list. So far down. <laughs> what do you? What is your favorite Quentin Tarantino movie? <sighs> Actually, I think Hateful Eight. Really? Yeah, I really do love it. Man, that is fascinating because you did not like it when we watched it. No, but we also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We also we, missed part of it, and then we were sitting at the very, very front and yeah. side of the theater, and we had to like strain our necks the whole time to yeah. see it. It was terrible, and and that was <laughs> extra ironic because it was shown in Cinerama, like Super Panavision, Super Panavision, and we went to a theater really far away, especially Just to, to see, see it, it, and that was in terrible. the widescreen process. Yeah, yeah, but but actually, I really like that one. Yeah, it has all the great things about like. I don't know, like a classic murder mystery. Because well, it's set up like a classic murder mystery. Yeah. And then there's poisonings and <laughs> shootings and all these There's clues. a really good Ennio Morricone score. I will, I will grant you that, totally. And then there's Obi, like, coming in from the, in the door that they have to keep nailing shut. Yeah, yeah. There's Listen, so many wonderful things about it. There's so many lies in it. Like, but, and it's but just, like, one, so contained. Mm. I love how contained it is. And I also really love the cast. I think it's the best cast. Yeah, it's good. He's ever had. I mean, but man, where's Pam Greer when you need her? Mm, <laughs> it's true. She had, yeah, you, listen, I I love uh, Jackie Brown. I love Jackie Brown too. It's, yeah. Yeah. But, but you hated this one. I hated this one. I'd love to know if other people read it really differently. Like if somehow I'm just missing something completely. I think you like, are because I, like I said, my reading of it is totally different. I need to, I am really kind of grossed out though by like the people laughing. that were in the theater with us that were laughing. Like it was the most hysterical thing in the world. And to then see afterwards they were killed. like, they were like, Oh man, I love to see hippies die. They literally said that. Did you notice when they said that? I didn't, I probably would have run away from them but if I heard that. I think, I think it's supposed to elicit this response so that the, the sane members of the audience then feel like, oh, man, maybe I got to knock on a lot of doors in 2020. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I just I just don't. I need to read more interviews where 
Tarantino talks about his feelings on John Wayne yeah. and what John Lennon represents for masculinity in America, because I think that would help clarify what he's trying to do with this film. Because I, like I said, I think you can read it two ways, and I want to read it in a you know way where Brad Pitt's character is secretly the villain of the You want to read it in a way where Quentin Tarantino is still your hero? He's not my <laughs> hero, uh, but I, th- I think he's on the side of the good. I usually. really wonder, though, like when we started watching his movies, we were like teenagers. Yeah, totally. You know, it was like subversive teenage movie watching, right? Yeah. And like, I actually really want to know what like teenagers think about this one. Like, I kind of feel like if you were a teenager coming into it and watching this, I think you would think it was the most boring movie ever. Well, there isn't really any action until the last yeah. act, basically. I mean, that's how it goes. Yeah. But anyway, uh, that's that's Signing all we're off. gonna say about. Yeah, Once I think Upon a Time I think our Hollywood. next episode, which we're probably gonna record like tomorrow, is gonna be about the art of self defense. The best movie of the <laughs> which year, which I love, which we both actually loved. Uh, but it's okay because no one else is probably talking about this movie as much as we're going to, and so it deserves gonna, it. Yes. And Nick's going to write a kick-ass song. Well, maybe we'll see. <laughs> Thanks for listening. All right. Sorry, Charlie, it's a walk-on part. It's on the TV, it isn't dark. David Crosby wants his...